Amen. Thank you, Johnny and the worship team. It's great to be back with you once again this week. Not only do we build our life on the love of God, but we also build our lives on the Word of God. So we are going to continue our series in James this week. We'll be in James 4, verses 13 through James 5, verse 12. We'll be covering a good bit this morning. Would you turn there? And I know that y'all stand and sit, but I like honoring the reading of the Word of God. So if y'all could stand for the reading of the Word, that would be fantastic. James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your own arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word? May you conform us more into the image of your beloved son, Jesus. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word this morning. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week in James chapter 4, we saw that James was warning the people of the church of Jerusalem and, and they're scattered in the region because of dispersion. We saw him warning his people about the dangers of being too closely associated with the world. That people, Christians, people who are part of the church, the called out ones, are meant to be distinct from the world. They are not meant to be overly friendly with the world. They're not meant to be that because they're supposed to have the aroma of Christ about them. 
And so we saw that there was also great grace available for those who are in Christ and still struggling with this, this worldliness that is a part of who we are because of where we are. So we saw this struggle play out and that there was grace available and that this very grace of God and this gift of faith that comes from the grace of God and the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts and turning our hearts back towards him, we saw that the outworking of this grace through faith, through this new heart that we have been given, is an outworking of actual works. That we should indeed work because of our faith. But our works, the things that we do, are only evidence of the faith that is within us. That that evidence does not make us Christians, but rather because we are Christians, we do produce works. And so this morning, James continues laying out this practical theology, this applied theology. And I suggest to you this morning that he gives us five pictures, five pictures of what it means to work out our faith, of having a faith that works. If you want to follow along in these, my sermon notes are in here so you can follow along with me as I go. The first picture that we get this morning is first a picture of humility, a picture of humility in verses 13 through 16. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, that you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live to do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Specifically, James is, I believe, talking to the merchant class, the people who do business within the church. Something has happened within the church that is causing him to address businesses and those who trade in commerce of that day and there he's posing this hypothetical situation where there these people are saying let's go into such and such town for such and such time probably a long time and let's make it our goal to make a profit from doing this now th- there's nothing inherently wrong with doing that or making plans or strategizing or dreaming about our businesses and how we should make a profit in order to make a living. James is not against making profit. He's not against making money in any kind of way. As a matter of fact, if you just think back just a few chapters, doesn't he lay out the case that the church is supposed to care for the widowed and the orphaned and the poor? And it, and it takes money to do that. It takes, it takes generosity of the people of the church that give to the church in order for the church to care for the widowed and the poor and the orphans. So he's, he's not against making a profit. What James is against here is a lack of recognition, a lack of humility, and not considering at all the will or the sovereignty of God. And I think if you, if you read this, and I, as I studied it this week, I, I came to read this text a little differently. I see a little bit of anxiety maybe within this. That today or, or, or tomorrow, we'll, we'll go into such a town and we'll, we'll make a profit and we'll stay there for a little while, I guess. There's a hint of anxiety with this and how I see the anxiety playing out in this passage as we'll see throughout the rest of this section of text that we're looking at this morning James is the half-brother of Jesus we know that from Matthew 13 55 
James the just is the half-brother of Jesus, so it should not surprise us that James uses the very language of Jesus in order to undergird the points that he is making for his congregation. It should not surprise us, and I think this is one of these places this morning in which he does this. You remember Matthew 6, verses 34 and 35? This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that James is using as uh, he can to undergird the argument that he's making here. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Can you, can you see the pretty much exact language that Jesus uses in Matthew 6 and how James is using that language almost exactly here in verses 13 through 16? I hope you, hope you can see that. And what James is trying to say at this point in time is that this today or tomorrow, they are worrying, they're anxious about what it, what it is, what will come to pass for their businesses and how they will make a profit. They're worried. They are disobeying Jesus in such a way that they're allowing anxiety to creep in. And not only are they doing that, their intention of doing this is to make a profit. Now if we read James in the context of what Jesus has taught us, their profit is becoming their kingdom. That is what they are after. Ultimately, they, they want to make a profit. Yet in doing so, they are not pursuing the kingdom of God in any way. They're, they're, they are not considering God's providence. They're not considering his sovereignty in any way. They're, they're strategizing and they're planning and they're dreaming with no consideration to the will of God in anything. And this picture of faith that, that James gives us here is a picture that faith ultimately, as we talked about at the end of last week, faith should be humble. Christians should be some of the meekest and most mild-mannered and humble people of all because they realize that they serve and are committing themselves to the God of the universe. Faith at work is faith that is humble. The second picture that James gives us is in verse 17. Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And this is a picture of obedience. So James sets the stage with addressing the merchants and he talks about humility and then he moves to obedience. And if any of us have had children, maybe you're raising children or plan to have children of your own one day, all of us were children at some point. And as you're teaching your children what obedience means, it usually goes something like this. When I tell you to do something, you do it. No questions asked, and you do it when I say to do it. You do it immediately. That's the picture of true obedience, that you do what you are commanded to do by an authority that is higher than you, and you do it without question and without pause. God has clearly revealed himself in his word, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And this picture of obedience is in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You think about the Old Testament and how God calls his people to himself and calls them to obedience. And it can be kind of summed up in in this, in Leviticus 19 too, right? 
Be holy because I am holy. Strive for holiness in everything. Be holy because I am holy. And then Jesus in Luke 10, 27, he says the, the law and the prophets, they can all be summed up in this, that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. And these things that God has commanded us to do, they can be kind of subdivided into a couple of different categories and how we fall short of what God has commanded. First, there's sins of commission. Sins of commission. That in our sin, that we deliberately do the very things that God has told us explicitly not to do. That's sins of commission. That we deliberately, volitionally, willfully, mindfully, we choose to do something that is against the very will of God that he has revealed for us. So an example of this might be someone who claims the name of Christ, who goes to church every week and is continued to look at the Bible, but their life looks exactly like the world. So someone that comes to church claiming the name of Christ, yet they're living a sexually active, promiscuous lifestyle. And the, the word does not change them. They're, they're doing things that they should not be doing in any capacity because the Lord has forbade them in doing that. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that for the drunkards and the thieves and the revilers and for the sexually immoral, those who practice such things continually, deliberately choosing such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. A sins of commission. Sins of omission Sins of omission is when God has told us to do something and yet we do not do it. He commands us to do something and we don't do it. And the very immediate example that we have of sins of omission is when James has commanded the church that we should care for the widow, that we should care for the orphan, that we should care for the poor. Yet if we do not do those things, then we are in sin. We have omitted we have not done what he has commanded us to do. Jesus has strong words for this as well in Matthew 25, does he not? That if we do not care for the, the orphaned and the widowed and the poor, then those people who commit sins of omission continually and deliberately also will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's broken into sins of commission, sins of omission, and what James gives us is a picture of what obedience looks like here in verse 17. That faith, the outworking of our faith, obeys the will of God the first time and does it. Faith is obedient. Third picture I want you to see starts in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on this earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. So James has moved his attention from those within the church, probably the business class within the church that, that makes their living through commer commerce and trade, and now he has turned his eyes to, I believe, unbelievers within the church, but who are claiming the name of Christ. Just look at the difference in language here. How much stronger James's language gets here in these verses. 
Weep how miseries are coming of you. Your things have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. This very strong imagery, very strong language. I think he's talking to non-believers, but what he's doing is James is, is really levying charges against those in the church who are participating in such things, namely people who are unbelievers and might have a lot of money. And these people with in the church or outside the church, whether believer or non-believer, have likewise, like the merchants in some ways, have they've pursued their own kingdom here on earth. They've pursued their own kingdom here on earth, whether it was accomplishment, whether it was material gain, it became their functional God. We all tend to have functional gods where out of our mouth come the proclamation that we love Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but our behavior a lot of times will do differently. We will behave in different ways. I don't think anything is different here that these men worshiped an accumulation of things in this world rather than worshiping the God who created all things. And I hope you can hear the language of Jesus even within this passage as well. Just in a short time, Jesus has, uh, James has already used Jesus' words three times, and this is another such instance. Matthew six nineteen through 21 and verse 24 Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The very exact same language that Jesus uses, James is using to once again undergird his argument against these men within the church. These men who have pursued such a lifestyle that has actually led them to fraud. Did you catch that in the scriptures? That it actually led them to fraud. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. You defrauded the people who were working for you, and with that defraudment, that embezzlement in some ways, you have used it to fatten yourselves up. You have used it to live a life of luxury. You have used it on your own sinful self-indulgence, is what James said. But these very things are the same things that indict you in front of the Lord God. You building your own kingdom rather than looking to God and to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, don't lay up treasures on earth. Why? Because moth and rust destroy. Gold and silver become corroded. The things that you wear, your garments become moth-eaten. What should we focus on then? We should focus on the kingdom of God. Why? Because ultimately the treasures that we lay up for ourselves here on earth, those treasures ultimately will disappear one way or the other. They will disappear the possessions, the houses, the investments, the toys, the things that our culture says that we must indeed have. And so our culture is the most debt-ridden culture on the face of the earth where we can go, we can get credit cards, or we can buy as much stuff as we want until we hit that max because we think those things will satisfy us and our inner longings for what we actually have been created for. And it leaves us wanting every single time. What instead should we focus on? We should focus on the kingdom of God. We should focus on indeed God himself because ultimately God is, 
He's better. God is better than anything that you could possibly ever materially own. He's better. He's so much better. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There are pleasures forevermore at his right hand. There is a fulfillment within God because he has created you. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that he has put eternity in the hearts of man, yet none can fathom what he has done from beginning to end. He has put eternity within your hearts. And we, so often in our sinful state, try to fill that hole of eternity with the temporal, the things that will ultimately dissipate, the things that will ultimately disappear. But God is so much better. And I plead with you this morning to look to God Look to Jesus Christ, his son. Find your ultimate fulfillment in him and in him alone. I love reading history. I love reading theology. And recently I've loved studying church historical figures, history of the church and how the Lord has used really sinful men and he's used them to continue to build his kingdom in spite of their sin. It's beautiful to watch the sovereignty of the Lord play out in sinful men. Listen to this quote by this historical figure and his description of God and who God is. Not only does he sustain this universe by his boundless might, regulate it by his wisdom, preserve it by his goodness, rule mankind by his righteousness and judgment, bear with it in his mercy, watch over it by his protection, but also there is no drop of wisdom or light or righteousness or power or rectitude or genuine truth that does not flow from him and of which he is not the cause of. Isn't that beautiful? Have you ever heard of a description in human terms, specifically in the English language, that is so full of who God is? Is that the God that you are delighting yourself in? Are you delighting yourself in this God This picture of warning should warn us to be warned like these rich men that we should not lay up treasures here on earth, but that we should focus on the eternal because God is better. The fourth picture that we get this morning comes from chapter five, verses seven through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rain, you also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And once again, we see James, the way that he speaks to his people change. Once again, we see it change once again. The language of brothers is littered throughout this section of text. He's no longer condemning rich men. He's no longer admonishing merchants. But now he's turned his face to the congregation And he says, therefore, be patient, my brothers. What are are they to be patient for? What are they to be patient in light of? And I think in light of everything that James has said previously, but also in light of everything that James has said throughout this letter, that they should be patient because of. This dispersion that has happened, how the churches have now become... 
strewn across the land because of persecution that they faced from the Roman Empire. And these churches have now become scattered. The dispersion has taken place. But they should be patient in light of the persecution that they are facing. They should be patient in light of the suffering. But notice how, what James says. He says, be patient, brothers, therefore, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, if, if someone is telling you that the Lord is coming and he's coming quickly, then it would probably lead to us kind of resting on our laurels, right? That, well, the, Lord, the Lord's coming back. I don't, I don't need to work any longer. I don't need to produce good spiritual fruit. I can kind of just sit back. I can wait for the Lord to come. I can wait for him to come, and he can make all things right, and for his kingdom here to come to earth. I can just wait until that time comes. But that would be the tendency, would it not? That if the Lord's coming back, I'm just going to wait. But that's not what James says to do. What's the picture that he gives? Instead of waiting, he points to a farmer. The farmer who toils day and night, working to provide a crop, working to provide something that will sustain him and sustain his family. He points to the farmer. Don't rest on your laurels. Be like the farmer. Toil with your faith until the precious fruit of the earth comes and be patient. Establish your hearts. Another way you can say is gird your loins. Establish your hearts for the Lord is coming. Don't speak poorly about one another. And then he gives a couple more examples of what it looks like to be patient. He uses examples from the Old Testament this time rather than looking at Jesus. He uses examples like the prophets and he uses examples like Job. Now, now, what's a prophet in the Old Testament? If you had to define what a prophet is, how would you define it? A prophet is someone who has been called by God to speak to God's people on his behalf. Called by God to take his message to his people. That is what a prophet is. And he uses the prophets as an example because how did most of their prophets meet their end? Painfully. Awfully. That's how they met their end. God called a number of prophets to speak truth, his truth to his people, and oftentimes his people killed the very prophet that God sent. This is a recurring pattern in the Old Testament. Yet in the face of death, these prophets stayed steadfast in their commitment to speaking the very message that God had them to speak to his people. They remained steadfast even in the face of death. Be patient like the prophets. Remain steadfast like the prophets. And once again, he uses Jesus here, I believe, in a small way from Matthew 5, verse 19. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So James keeps this idea of seeking the kingdom above all things here by using Matthew 5, 19. Rejoice and be glad, for your great reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were also before you. Second example he uses is Job. You, re- you remember Job. A lot of us are familiar with Job. Even people who don't know a whole lot about the Bible are familiar with Job. Now what's significant about Job? Well, Job endured a great amount of suffering in his life. A great amount. His house was taken from him. His wife was taken from him. His children were taken from him. Everything that he loved, everything that he cherished here on earth was taken away in a series of days, maybe weeks. And he got questionable advice from very questionable friends. 
and he even questioned God in the process a little bit, but is not the theme of Job ultimately what he says in chapter 2? Shall we not also receive evil from the Lord? He gives us good. Shall we not also receive evil from him? And then later on in Job, as his suffering becomes more intense, he says, even though he slay me, still I will praise him. Even though he slay me. Even though the Lord would slay me. Even though I know the Lord's the one bringing the suffering on me. Even though I know it's the Lord that's bringing the persecution upon me. I still will praise him in the midst of it all. That we should be patient like Job. We should remain steadfast in our commitment to the Lord. Like Job was. That we should seek first his kingdom still. The outworking of our faith should be patient. And the fifth picture that we get comes from verse 12. But above, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. So that you may not fall under any condemnation. And just quickly, this is directly from Jesus once again. In Matthew 5, verse 37, 33 through 37, this is what Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount once again. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. The outworking of our faith should also be trustworthy. It should also be trustworthy. So we have these five pictures that James has given us here. Now what do we do with these pictures? As people that come to church in Christ, how should we be encouraged to live in light of what James has been teaching throughout the course of this book? How should we live? So I want to apply these things individually and corporately for us this morning. Individually, the simple questions, taking the pictures. Are you humble? Is the outworking of your faith producing humility within you? Do you see God as exalted? Do you see him as large, as big, as bigger than anything that you could possibly comprehend? Do you see him that way and do you see yourself as tiny? Do you realize that you're very small in the course of this world, in the course of this universe? And it is by God's grace that he uses you. It's by God's grace that he draws you to himself. And because of that, it should produce within us a certain humility, knowing that we serve the God of the universe, the creator, Yahweh. Does it produce within you humility? Are you obedient? Are you obedient? Do you see what God has revealed in his word? Throughout his word, progressively throughout his word, from Genesis to Revelation, the Old Testament and New Testament, and do you obey do you obey the first time and without question knowing that his laws and his rules and what he has set out for you in his word is ultimately for your good and for his glory? So many times we can see the regulations of the Lord as being restrictive of the life we want to live. Can we not? But those restrictions are there for your joy. 
and for his glory. Third, are you in need of warning? And this comes from the third picture that we had. Are you subtly or not so subtly building your kingdom individually here on earth rather than focusing on the eternal? Are you finding yourself not focusing on the eternal, on his kingdom more than you should be? Are you focusing on his kingdom in the way that he has called you to, that you should seek first his kingdom and everything else and his righteousness and then everything else will be added to you? Are you seeking first his kingdom? Or do you need to be warned this morning to stop? That if the Lord has produced within you a heart that is now longing after him, that your heart should be what his desire is as we talked about last week and we should long to be at his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. Do you have that longing or do you need to be warned? Ultimately, are you patient? And those of us with kids say, not always. Not always. But is there a growing sense, a growing pattern of patience in your life? Even amidst suffering, even amidst anything terrible that may be going on, is there a growing patience because you are resting in the sovereignty of God? Are you patient? Are you growing in patience? And, thirdly, and lastly, are you trustworthy? Is the outworking of your faith making you more trustworthy? Is your yes, yes? And is your no, no? Do you do what you are supposed to do and say and do the things that you are going to do? Are you trustworthy? And lastly, let's think about us corporately as a church. Think about Haynes Creek corporately. Are y'all humble as a church? Do y'all continue to exalt Jesus over all things and his gospel above all things? Are y'all obedient? Are y'all obedient to his very word that builds the church? Are y'all in need of warning? Are there places that the church needs to be warned about? Needs to be exhorted in, admonished in? Is the church patient? Are you patient? And finally, is Haynes Creek trustworthy? Is Haynes Creek trustworthy? I pray that this message is an encouraging message for Christians, that it stirs you up, stirs your affections up, that you may continue to produce good works in your life. That you may continue to walk this pilgrimage and seek to finally get to the golden shore one day. And along the way that your life will be a testimony to the grace and to the goodness of God in all things. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you were glorified this morning. Would you continue to conform us more into the image of Christ? Would you make us more humble? Would you make us more obedient to your word? Would you warn us in the places that we need to be warned? Would you make us more patient? Would you make us more trustworthy? We want to do these things for your glory, Lord. For your glory and for our joy. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.